I want to speak to you this morning from a different text of Scripture than I was planning on because of a number of things that have happened over the last week. And so I want to speak to you pastorally today. It is a beautiful irony that it's storming outside today because the first line I have in my notes is storms in the Bible seem to play an important role in God's providence. God used a storm in Noah's day to bring judgment to the world. God used a storm to redirect the disobedient Jonah. God used a storm on the Sea of Galilee to reveal Christ's power and his authority. And I'm here to tell you that God used a storm this week in my life. God used a perfect storm of colliding events this last week to direct me to what I am compelled to preach to you this morning. And here's what I mean. Here are some of the events that took place that brought me here to 1 Timothy this morning. The first event was a storm that tested my pastoral integrity when a man violently and shamefully pulled into our driveway and interrupted a wedding celebration out here last Saturday, the one that I was officiating. He pulled in and verbally attacked me in the parking lot because he couldn't get through to where he wanted to go, he began cussing me out and screaming at all the visitors. That was a temptation for me, just so you know. My blood pressure would have testified to it. I was tempted in that storm to defend myself. Trust me, I wanted to. But it would have brought shame on Christ's name and reproach on our church. And so the Lord in his gracious power and love overpowered my sinful flesh, and to him be the glory. He restrained me. The next event, the next storm that appeared in the headlines was a storm of sadness. As yet another celebrity preacher fell into sin and brought reproach on Jesus' name, giving our enemy and the world another reason to doubt the truth and the sanctifying power of the gospel. The next storm hit through a phone call that I received from a very discouraged man, a man who was in charge of a pastoral search committee. And he told me he had received around 100 pastoral candidates' resumes. <laughs> and out of the 100 candidates that he received, he threw away 80 to 90 of those resumes immediately. He trashed them because they asked a real simple question that they couldn't get right. And this is sort of, sort of a sampling of this. He said, here was the question, why do you think God is calling you to pastor our church? Seems like a pretty straightforward, easy question for a pastor to answer. But most, if not all, of the 80 or so that he threw away answered somewhat like this. I'd like to pastor this church because my family is retiring and living in that area these days. It'd be nice to be close to family. That was the reasoning. One man in particular said, here's why I want to pastor this church. I led a mission trip last year for a week, and I think I'd like to try pastoring a church now. Those kinds of answers explain a lot of the problems that we see in evangelicalism today. These guys get hired, but that's what they are. They're hirelings. It's sad. It was a storm of sadness that overcame me after hearing this man weeping almost, telling me these things. The last storm was a good storm. The last storm that God used this week was Justin's sermon from Sunday. And that storm brought refreshment and conviction to my soul. It did that because in his message, he drew out something very important. I hope you all caught it. I caught it for sure. He drew out the characteristics of what a true man of God should look like whenever he pointed to the characteristics of Timothy and Epaphroditus out of Philippians 2. 
these men and the characteristics that we saw in them last week, they were used by God in that region to point the saints ultimately to the true shepherd of their souls, the Lord Jesus, through their actions. And that's what men of God are called to do. That is your primary job, is to point to Christ and not to yourself. Part of the problems with the celebrity pastor that fell was he pointed a lot to himself. And out of pride, he fell, thinking no one can touch me, nothing can harm me. Arrogance will lead to a destructive landing. But these men of God that Paul, or that Justin rather, talked about, they were exhibiting Christ-like characteristics. They were Christ-like examples. And if you paid attention to that text, you notice they were Christ-like and Christ-exalting examples in both their words and their deeds. And this is critical. That's why they are called on to be honored in that passage. They're called on to be honored because such men who act like this and talk like this and lead like this, they are actually honoring and magnifying the Lord Jesus through their ministry. Those kinds of men should be honored because they seek to honor Christ. Men are not worthy of honor, but Jesus is. When a man's called to represent him, that man better represent him accurately. These storms really drove the sermon of Justin's home in my heart and my mind this week. And it made me begin to think about some things more seriously in my own life, but also just in general as, as a church and in Christendom. And it made me want to cry out to God in, in, in humble, penitent heart, just say, God, we need your help to protect us from such things that we see happening all around us. People making shipwreck of their faith, bringing reproach on Christ. We as a church and as elders need your protection. And, and why is this happening so often? Why is it every other month, it seems, we hear about another celebrity pastor falling I was thinking about this. Why? Why is this? Why are elders tempted to sin and bring reproach on Christ? Why are so many well-known men falling and bringing reproach on Christ? Why are so many pastoral candidates trying to get a job and not serve Christ? Why is that? Well, there are multiple answers to this, but if I could boil it down to just a couple, maybe three, here's, here's what I've came down to. One, it's biblical ignorance leads to a lot of this. The other is sin. Unchecked men who are unaccountable. But I think there is even more to it than that. And Justin hit on it this morning in the equipping hour. There is a spiritual truth at play that we don't often think about or we don't want to think about when it comes to the man of God and the people of God and our role here on earth. And church, we need to understand something this morning. As believers, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And Christ's church will have to weather many spiritual storms in this fallen world because we have a real spiritual enemy, a real adversary. And he is seeking to discredit God's people. He is seeking to weaken the church by sin and disrupt our mission on earth because he can't take our salvation. But he can do all that. He can do all that if we don't have the right leadership, if we don't have God's word guiding us, if we don't have holy people living in light of the examples they are given in Scripture and in their leadership. See, when, when we talk about pastoral qualifications, understand something. Those are the bare minimums of the Christian life to begin with. 
When you talk about the character traits of a pastor, that's the trait that you should be exhibiting as a Christian. It's not exceptional. It's the standard. And so what you see us calling for and what you see us doing is to be an example for you to follow after. And that's weighty for us. It holds our feet to the fire. But yet God has promised to protect you through this and bring provision to you through this. When you go through the spiritual battles of life, the storms that you have to weather spiritually, God's called out men to lead and guide his church in the face of all of our spiritual enemies. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Those men, just think about how they were marked out. They were marked out by integrity, by holiness, and by Christ-like love. It's very clear in that passage. God calls out such men to do this, to illustrate these characteristics and teach these truths to his people so they can defeat and stand firm in the face of our enemies. God knows this, and sometimes we forget it. God knows that as the leadership goes, so goes the church. And he knows then that when the leadership is in line with his word, the church will be also. When the leadership is characterized by Christ-likeness, so will the church's life be. And then we'll be able to extinguish the, the fiery darts of the enemy. Then we'll be able to silence our accusers and we'll be able to march forward into the gates of hell without fear. But it comes down to living in light of what God said his leaders ought to be. So that those who follow can display the power of God's transforming grace in their life. And when you have faulty leadership, you cannot expect maturity or sanctification in the saints. So both need to be in check. And so this morning, this is a check, a check for us all. Who is called to lead the church in the spiritual battle that we're engaged in? And how do we identify such leaders? Or if I put it in one sentence, who are these leaders and what marks them out as leaders? God wants us to know this. It's essential that we know this. We, we need to know who these men are, and we need to know what God wants those men to do, what they're expected to do and reveal through their life. And that's what 1 Timothy six eleven to 14 addresses. Here in this passage, we learn that God tells us what must characterize or mark out a man of God, a pastor. It's a humbling text to any true pastor and it must be, and it should be, because pastors are being called on here to do something very particular. And I blended this with another passage of Scripture. Pastors are being called on here to work out their salvation and calling with fear and trembling. Knowing that God calls us to set an example for the church to follow. And listen, guys, that should terrify every man in pastoral ministry and those who even think about it. Don't come talking to me or Justin or Paul or the other Paul about being called into pastoral ministry if you're not willing to set the example now in your life as one who'd be worthy to follow and point to Christ. Look with me there in 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to begin actually in verse 3 and read down to verse 14. I'll say 2B and start there. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. If men are doing this, we need to avoid them. There's got to be a, a complementary example of this, right? So that's what he's going to do. He's going to tell us that. These guys think that godliness is some sort of like gain for them to, to gain contentment. And he says, look, for, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment. He's saying, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are some weighty words to the leadership of every church and to the people who are to follow their examples. In verse 11, Paul answers my first question. Who is called to lead the church in the spiritual battle that we are to be engaged in? He begins by saying, but as for you, O man of God, Timothy, that's you. You're the pastor of this church. But as for you, here's what you've got to do. You're the man of God. Now, it's interesting he uses this title, or this term maybe would be a better way to say it. He uses this term, man of God, to do something very particular for Timothy, because Timothy was very acquainted with the Old Testament. He's using this term to compel Timothy to carry out his duty as a pastor by using an Old Testament term to add weight to the nature of his calling. See, the, the title man of God here is only used in the New Testament in two places, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's a term that identifies who a pastor belongs to. It's a term that identifies who he must serve. He doesn't serve in the first sense the church. He serves God who calls him to care for the church. The term was used in the Old Testament to describe very specific men who were called God's own possession, his instruments. It was used to identify men who were chosen by God to do his bidding and to speak for God as his representatives. Here's an illustration of a few. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. And what he's doing here, what Paul is doing here by applying this term, man of God, to Timothy, he's laying the weight on Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you are now in the same long line of godly men who are set apart for God's sacred service. And he's telling Timothy, this is who you're going to be. You're going to be God's man. And I want you to know that you personally now belong to God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, set apart for sacred service. He's a man whom God in the truest and highest sense now owns. You're not your own. God owns you. You're called to serve him. 
He's God's man. And so that means as a pastor or a shepherd, a man of God then is set apart not to do his own will, not to do his own thing, not to be creative in the pulpit, not to create a sense of comfort around the people, but he's got to speak the truth of God to the people of God by the authority of God. He's called to do God's will. He's set apart to declare his word. He's set apart to care for God's people in the way God has commanded him to do so. Not through the direction of the church growth movement, the psychologies of the world, but through the call of God through his word. He must be a man, then, if he's called out to be used in this particular way. He must be a man who then seeks to reflect God's holy calling on his life, both inwardly and externally. This is what's so important. This is what the enemy knows. And if he can distort the man of God's heart to think that he is above correction, above accountability, he has got him where he wants him. But the man of God is called to both inwardly and externally be God's representative. And this is weighty. But thinking about this answers my second question. What, what, what marks out then the man of God? What, what characteristics should he display? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11 further, he tells us, first of all, a man of God must flee from sin. Well, he's, he's talking about inwardly. He's talking about personally. He's talking about privately. This isn't simply externally like, oh, you caught me speeding, right? No, like his desire, his rebellious nature, all those things in his flesh that try to rise up. You are to flee from these things. You're God's man. You don't have the privilege or the right to enjoy sin for a season. You've got to flee from it. Run. You represent God. The man of God must flee these things, he says in verse 11. Flee these things. Well, what things, Paul? Well, the things that Paul was referring to in the text in particular, right? Things that could corrupt the pastor's heart. Things that would pollute his mind and his motives. The things that the false teachers lusted after there in verses 9 and 10. What did they lust after, ultimately, if you boiled it down? They lusted after power, prestige, personal gain, and praise. Do we not see that today in many ministries? Men who have been elevated to this point, they've got power, they have prestige, they have personal gain as a result, and they have the praise of man. But they lack one thing, the praise of God. Paul's telling Timothy and all men of God, you've got to flee these desires. Flee these desires because they're going to distract you. They're going to distract you. They're going to distort your service for Christ. And ultimately, they're going to bring shame on the name of Jesus. That should be enough to cause you to flee from these things. And listen, saints, if this is what the man of God is to do, and you are called on by God to follow his example as he follows Christ, this is what you are to do in light of the sin in your heart. The desires that draw you away. You are to flee from them. You belong to God. Jesus died for your sins. Do not continue wallowing in the mire and muck of this filth in the world. You can change biblically. Look to Christ. Cry out for hope and for help. He'll give you that grace. 
There is no excuse for sin in the Christian's life. Even our, our sin and our flesh will not excuse sin in our actions. Christ has saved us. Christ has called us to be holy. The love of Christ should now constrain us when it comes to sin and keep us from it and fleeing away from it. The man of God must do that. You must do that. The man of God has to be constantly doing that. That's the implication of Paul's words here. It's a very interesting use of the the verb. He's telling him to constantly flee selfish and sinful desires. He calls him a fuego, a fuego. We get the word fugitive from this. You are to be a fugitive, one who constantly flees from sin. You are to follow that man as he flees away from sin. See why he sees it's dangerous. See why he recognizes it's, it's possible distraction in his own life and go, there's something to, to note. He's, he's saying, look out for these things. I should pay attention. He's fleeing. I'm going to flee. He's given you a personal example of that if he's doing his work well. He's to be a constantly running man, constantly running from sinful and selfish desires. He's to be like Joseph when he encountered Potiphar's wife, when she tries to entice him. He tries to avoid her, but ultimately he says, I'm done, and he flees. He leaves the building. That's what every pastor and every Christian should do also. We've got to follow Joseph's example in that. Flee from these things. Things that will dishonor Christ. Things that will distract you from the work you're called into. Flee from those. But fleeing is not enough. The Bible is full of put on and put off commandments. Colossians and Ephesians give us two different lists. We are to flee, put off certain things, but we are to immediately put on other things. Because if you leave that a vacuum, something else will come in. So we must not only flee from sinful desires. The man of God and the people of God must set their minds on things above. Not just recognizing sin, but setting your minds on things above and pressing on to the high calling in Christ Jesus. And you do that by actively then, what what Paul's going to say here is you do this by actively pursuing holiness. That which magnifies Christ. That which Christ has obtained for you. That which glorifies his work in your life. That's what he says in verse 11b. He tells us the man of God must now pursue Christ's likeness. Now, he is speaking of it internally or personally, but this one is going to go further. It's also publicly. Pursue Christ's likeness not only in your heart, in your life, in your convictions, but in your actions. What's interesting, there are six different things he says here, couplets, if you will, and, and they speak of the internal and the external. Change of heart and a change of action and life, right? He says this in verse 11. Here's what you're to pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. In other words, pursue Christ-like behavior. Magnify Jesus through your actions and through your thoughts. And, and he's, again, he's saying this pursuit is to be continual. There's no reprieve. Sin does not stop after you say, oh, I'm going to quit doing that. The temptations keep coming. The flesh is weak. 
And if we're not continually combating that sin with pursuit of things that honor God and have the greater joy in pleasing the Lord, we will then take up sin again. But when you are constrained by the love of Christ and you pursue what pleases him and honors him, there's a greater joy that comes with it in knowing that I have been able to serve my master and override the temptations that draw us so easily away. Paul's calling for Timothy to think about this. Seriously, he's saying you need to make Christ's likeness your lifelong pursuit, your evident lifelong pursuit. Not one time, one moment, but continually. Make Christ's likeness your evident lifelong pursuit. And you're to do that because it's just the opposite of what the false teachers are doing. The false teachers, <laughs> they have been evidently. Pursuing something with their life as well. They pursued riches, power, and praise. But then he makes the distinction there in verse 11. But you, O man of God, you must pursue the praise of Christ and do what brings honor to him. So Paul is then telling Timothy that the man of God must be a man and known as a man who is continually, first of all, pursuing righteousness. Pursuing righteousness, meaning pursuing holiness in your outward behavior. And you are to do that so that, primarily so that, you'll not bring shame on the one you represent, Jesus. You'll not bring shame on the bride he purchased with his own blood, the church. That's what's going to extinguish the fiery darts of our enemy and make the church effectual here in this world. When we walk in this... When we are known by our pursuit of righteousness, our transformation of our heart and our lives, the world stands up and takes notice. There's enough Christianity out there that tries to compromise with the world, blend in, to recognize that they're ineffectual completely. They're not good for the world. They're not good for the church. They're to be spewed out. We need men and women of God who stand firm in the truth, pursue what honors God and pleases him, and then points to why we do it. Jesus Christ has changed my life. And the power of the gospel is not just something I say with my mouth. It changes everything about me. Jesus is Lord and master now of everything I do. Pursue righteousness. Then he tells Timothy, The man of God must also continually pursue godliness. He must be being continually conformed to God's character in every area of his life and his labors. He he must be a compassionate man of God. He must be a patient man of God. He must be a just man of God. He must be a faithful man of God. He must be a gracious man of God. He must be a truthful man. Man of God. And listen, saints, when when you have men of God who are like that, they display godliness. The false accusations of the world will not stick. There's the guard against pastoral failure. Call the men of God to walk in godliness uprightly before their God and serve serve his church because he is their master. Paul goes on to say a pastor Our man of God must continually pursue faith, pursue faith. It's real simple. He's simply saying, you've got to trust in God. 
You've got to keep trusting in God, no matter what it looks like, no matter what's happening. Trust in God to guide you in your work. Trust in God to, trust in God to protect you in your calling as a pastor, especially when you have to do what pastors are called to do, when you have to call out the enemy, when you have to point out sin in the life of a believer. When these things try to creep into the church and cause division, you've got to trust in God as you stand firm and speak the truth, silence foolish speech, and call out sin and call for repentance. Nobody likes to do this, all right? But if you're trusting in God and his ordained rule and guidance in his word, you will do this. In spite of what people think about you, you're trusting in God. He is your defense. You trust in him and you do what is right. God will bring about the change that needs to be changed in those you speak to. But trust in God. Continually, keep on doing that. That was, that was important to Timothy. Timothy was intimidated in this church. The youngest guy there, the other elders were older than him. He's having to come in and correct them all. And Paul's telling him, you've got to continue on in your faith. Trust God. Do what's right. Here's what your command is. And then he tells him this. The man of God must continually also pursue love. Pastoral ministry without agape is impossible. God loved the church, sent his son to die for her. We have no right to say that we don't like them. They're annoying. I went to a banner association meeting. All these pastors gathered around, and they spent the next hour bad-mouthing every member of their church. I walked out. Not the men I want to associate with. They didn't love them. Man of God must love the people of God. They must show agape. He must do that by pursuing the good of others above his own needs, his own desires, his own time. Listen, if anybody here ever feels called to pastoral ministry, let me just give you a, a, a little clue here. Your time's not your own anymore. You're on call 24-7. Saints don't have problems on Sunday mornings only. And if you don't love God and love them... This task will be irksome. But you're to show this love because this is the love that God shows you. And think about who Jesus loved. He loved the needy, not just those who are worthy. Right? I mean, look at the time he spends with Judas. Not once, except finally at the end, at the, at the Last Supper, not once does he just kick Judas to the curb. Right? He's got him right there alongside him. He loved the needy. Not the worthy. There aren't unworthy. He loved us in spite of ourselves. That's the way a pastor must love the people of God. The man of God must also continually pursue steadfastness. He, he must follow Jesus' example in this. He must follow his example in the preaching and exhortation that he's called to give. And do it with great patience, in season and out of season. Because Jesus did that. When, when, when all forsook Jesus, what did he do? He continued on faithfully in his labors for the sake of the needy. We've got to be steadfast. And lastly, the, a pastor, a man of God, must continually pursue gentleness. Gentleness. Now, this is the one that was tested in my own life. He must pursue kindness when pushed to the edge. And that happens a lot, a lot more than you think. We must pursue this, though, by looking to Christ 
who exhibited strength under control. Christ is his guide. Christ is his restraint. So he is to be a man who is not under pressure to defend himself, but only the name of Jesus and the saints. That's our calling. See, the man of God isn't just to flee something. He is to follow after some things. Follow after what brings glory and honor to Jesus through your actions. Don't just flee in your heart from sin, but flee to Christ and then follow him in the way you live your life. And, you know, I think about this and I think about another place in Timothy in chapter 4 where Paul lays much emphasis. And even in chapter 3 where Paul lays much emphasis on the pastor's personal character. And I think he does that. I think it's emphasized so much for two reasons. The character of the pastor testifies first to his regeneration. His character displays the fruit of salvation. It makes it evident. And then secondly, as I've been saying, the pastor's personal character will serve God's kingdom. It'll serve as an example for others to follow. Saints, that's what the man of God is called to do. He's called to speak the truth for God. And live the truth before God's people. He's setting forth a pattern for Christ's people to follow. And it's going to be either good or bad, depending on where his heart is drawn. If he's looking, looking for praise and adoration of men, he's going to be a poor example of Christ. But if he's looking to please Christ and honor him, he's going to be faithful, whether men or women like him or not. If a man in ministry is not devoted to this, if he's not devoted to honoring Jesus in his own private life, I've got bad news for you. If he's not willing to fight the spiritual battles in his own life, it's likely that he'll either be unable to help you or unwilling to help you fight that in your life. And you know why? If he has to call you out, he could be called out. So he says nothing. See, his private sins affect the health of the church. And this is where Satan comes in and brings division and disrupts the unity of the saints. If a man isn't pursuing Christ privately, here's what you need to know. His failure will one day be revealed, either in the day of battle or when Christ returns. He's not going to escape the holy gaze of his master. Look at verse 12. Paul reminds us, Timothy, of this. He he gives Timothy the, the weighty words we see next to help him remember this. He reminds the man of God here to flee, flee sin personally, pursue Christ-likeness publicly. And here's why. So that he could fight for the faith of others with intensity. Not being robbed himself of spiritual strength because of his indwelling sin, because he's let it go. He's neglected confessing and repenting of it. Verse 12, he's saying, look. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is what you're called to do. This is, this is intense language that Paul uses here. He's making it clear that the man of God must fight. There's no, no way around this. You must fight for the faith of others and you must do it intensely. You will not do it intensely if you're harboring sin in your own life. You might get exposed. So you hide. You pull back. You don't serve as you ought. But he says, you've got to fight. You need to live a pure life, fleeing from sin, pursuing holiness, so you can fight for the saints and the glory of God. The man of God is being called on here to lead the saints 
who are going to go through spiritual battles in life and lead by his example. And he's to do it with intense dedication. And he uses the serious language in this verse that's just really hard to notice in the English. It's a serious fight. In this battle, we face formidable enemies. We fight against Satan, sin, and the flesh. And in this fight, we have to have a pure mind, an undistracted mind. We need to be focused on Jesus because we are called on by God to destroy human ideologies, psychologies, and vain imaginations that are raised up against the knowledge of Christ. You can see the intensity of of this verse if you just look at the words in the Greek. The words he uses in verse 12 are very telling. It literally says, Timothy, O man of God, you must agonize the good agony. He's using this term that was very familiar to Timothy and to Paul in this culture. It came straight out of the Greek games where the, where the boxers were set in a ring and they were called on to agonize the good agony so they could win the prize. And this is intense. It's intense because the boxers in those days used oxhide gloves, right, with fur lining on the inside. No lining, no padding on the outside. Instead of lining on the outside or padding on the outside, they were laced with lead or brass on the outside. So when you fought, you fought for the ultimate prize. You fought for your life. This is an intense illustration. Paul is telling the man of God, listen, you're not in some lightweight competition. You are literally fighting for the souls of men and the glory of God. Get in there, live the life you're called to live, serve God and protect those people. When we don't have men of God doing that today, that's when we have the problems that I mentioned in those storms earlier. God, protect us from that. God, guide us. Keep us in the way that brings honor to Christ. And let it start with leadership and let it move through the church so that Christ would be honored on the last day. Look at how he ends this in verse 12. He ends with this finale of take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, take hold of the eternal life. Here's what he means. Get a grip, Timothy. Get a grip on the eternality of your calling as a man of God. The glory of God and man's eternal destiny is at stake. So grab on. Grab on to the reality. This this spiritual fight you're in, it's for keeps. It's for souls. Take it seriously. Flee these things. Pursue these things. Fight for these people. Saints, my heart is burdened because this is not happening in so many places. It's killing me. Look what he does further here in 13 and 14. Paul really drives his point home here by reminding Timothy, guess who you're fighting for? Guess who called you into this fight in the first place, Timothy? Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and flee from reproach. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, pastor. Listen, man of God. Listen, Christian. You are charged in the presence of God to keep the command to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness so that you would be unstained and free from reproach when Jesus comes. Isn't that what you want? 
I mean, I want to stand here one day and Christ return and just just immediately rejoice. I want to see him and glorify him now as well as on that day, though. And I want my life to be marked out by his labor of love and sacrifice. And that's what sanctification is. Listen, sanctification is just justification in action. Because you've been declared righteous in Christ, now live like it. Out of joy, out of thankfulness. Paul, Paul uses this weighty, weighty call to, to Timothy to say, look, look who called you into this fight. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what did Jesus do? Oh, yeah, he fought. He fought for our faith. He fought without wavering and for keeps. Here's how he fought. He laid his life down for us. And he took the penalty we deserved to grant us the righteousness we could never earn. So that we could be set apart unto God and be ambassadors for Christ, representing him on earth as his people. And it starts with the man of God, and it better filter down through the people. If we want to be effectual and we want to stand firm in the spiritual battle, we are going to be engaged in in the future. Every man of God needs to know that. Jesus spoke the truth and he gave his life for the sake of others. He fought the fight, the good fight. He finished the race perfectly. And every man of God is called to do the same thing until he comes, until they go home. Paul's telling Timothy and telling us, this is no game. This ministry is no game. There are real souls, real eternal lives being at risk here. We have got to speak the truth. We have got to flee from sin. We've got to be righteous examples, pointing to the source of our righteousness, which is Christ Jesus. And we've got to stand firm in the midst of these spiritual battles and do what God has commanded us. Because souls are perishing all around us. The name of God is being blasphemed in the church. Not our church, but in the church generally. We've got a fight on our hands. In order to be trained and well-equipped for the fight, we've got to be pure. We've got to be strong. We've got to be equipped. We've got to flee from sin. We've got to look to Christ, trust in his word. When I look at all this... And I look at all these requirements that the man of God has, right? What he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. I immediately know where I fall short. And I desperately want to excel in holiness. You know, we should preach every sermon as if it's the last one we'll ever preach or the last one you'll ever hear. We should live our Christian lives that way too. The last time we have a witness to display the glory of Jesus to others the moment that you have in front of you. If you did that, you wouldn't waste your time. We want to do that. I want to do this. I want to excel and serve you better because you are Christ's precious bride. And, and I can speak for all the elders here by saying that our longing as elders would be to be the men that God calls to guide you to Christ, guard you from sin, and be living examples of godliness that you can follow. But pray for us. We haven't fully arrived at that. But we want that, and here's why we want it. The same reason Paul wanted this for Timothy. We want this so that you will be kept unstained by sin and free of reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what every man of God wants for his people. That should haunt his heart before he preaches every sermon and interacts with every saint. Pray for us in that, please. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your immense grace.
the direction you give us in your word and the power you promise by your spirit to do what you command. We pray that we would be marked out as a people, as those who reflect Christ's likeness, that honor his name, do not bring reproach upon him. We would stand firm in the day of battle, knowing that we can trust in the captain of our soul to keep us and guide us and conform us to his own image, even through the battles we face. I thank you for all the men who serve here. I thank you for all the saints as they seek to honor and submit and direct their lives in a way that would honor you. And I pray you be glorified through all that. In Jesus' name, amen.